This is Intersection, I'm Matthew Petty. As the number of patients being treated for COVID-19 begins to decline, hospitals are starting to scale back some of the measures they'd put in place at the peak of the latest surge. Advent Health Orlando announced this week they were moving from black status to red status, allowing additional surgical procedures that had been put on hold to go ahead. But there are still a lot of patients with COVID who are fighting for their lives. Dr Rachel Humphrey, Advent Health Orlando's Director of High-Risk Pregnancy Care, says pregnant women are among those patients and many of them are unvaccinated. When we talk about the devastation that comes when we say, wow, you know, we had 70 people die of COVID last week in Orlando alone, in Orange County alone. Um, Each of those 70, that's a story. And uh, we certainly are seeing people that the families are incredibly affected. And I just, my heart goes out to people that weren't vaccinated at this point. In, In a sense, having the vaccine almost increases the tragedy because when we're having people die, you know, this month and during this big peak, these are all people that could have been vaccinated. And that, it, it sort of heightens to me the sadness that comes along with all the loss that we're dealing with. We've been hearing so many stories from physicians across the board about the, the rush of COVID-19 patients and what that's meant for their day-to-day jobs. Um, what have you been seeing? What's it been like for yourself over the last couple of weeks to a month, I guess? Right. So um, it's like I'm living in two different worlds. I'm living in the world of the hospital where we have very real struggles occurring with young women who are pregnant, um, who are incredibly sick and fighting for their life um, with COVID-19. And then I live in this other world where I see patients in the office who are hesitant to be vaccinated, uh, despite what we know of the safety of the vaccine and the recommendations that I and others are providing those patients with. And I see even out in the community, people who are taking this very seriously. I know people who've been vaccinated and continue to wear masks. And then people who really have not made the choice to either continue wearing masks or to get vaccinated. As far as um, COVID-19 and how it's impacting your patients directly, what, what can you tell me about that? Are, are, you, are you dealing with a lot of patients who are seriously ill with COVID right now? Yes, absolutely. So it's been just over a month that we've been in black status at Advent Health Orlando, which means that we have such a large number of very sick people with COVID that we're not able to continue to maintain business as usual for, let's say, elective procedures and that. And during that month-long time, we have had pregnant women sick and on a ventilator the entire time and multiple women on ventilators and sick fighting for their lives in pregnancy, even up through today. Mm-hmm. It did look, just from the, the sort of numbers over the last few days, over the last weekend, it looked like we may be turning a corner. Um, I guess there's always a bit of a lag, right, in terms of hospitalizations and, and what that means for patients in your care. But what's your sense of how things are going? Are you optimistic that we may have possibly turned a corner and things may be looking better? So I'm optimistic by the numbers I've seen that there's lower positivity rates in outpatient testing. From the hospital standpoint, people tend to get severely ill a week or more after the initial infection. So while it's great to hear those numbers, we still have a lot of really sick people in the hospital. Well, let's talk a little more in a little more detail, if we could, about pregnancy and COVID. So 
there has been misinformation sort of floating around about vaccinations in general. Could you talk about what that means for an OBGYN and somebody in, in, in your field? You're looking at high-risk pregnancies. Like, what should uh, people who are pregnant be doing in terms of vaccination? Like, is there any doubt or, or, or risk to, to people getting vaccinated if they're pregnant? And Matt, this is where I'm so excited to talk to you because I feel like we can actually together save some lives because none of the women that I've taken care of in the past month that have been intubated, very sick in the hospital, delivering preemie babies because of COVID, none of them have been vaccinated. And um, unfortunately, when I talk to the families or talk to the patients, one of the most common things I hear is that not that they were offered the vaccine and declined it, but just simply that they'd avoided it because they didn't know it was safe. And so I like to make it very clear to our patients that we see in the office, as well as to all the pregnant women and women planning pregnancy out there, that we have great data to show that vaccination for COVID-19 with vaccines such as the Pfizer-BioNTech and Moderna messenger RNA vaccines is safe and effective in pregnancy, in breastfeeding, and in women wanting to get pregnant. One of the things we've heard from epidemiologists and from people who, I guess, study the the social science of, um, you know, diseases and how they work and, and, and how people respond to them is, it sounds like a personal conversation with a trusted advisor, whether it's a friend or a physician or what have you, is sometimes the the turning point for somebody deciding to do something, for example, get a vaccine in this case. So, I mean, have you had some success stories? Like, have you had conversations with patients who may have been initially hesitant and then you were able to sort of say, look, here are a bunch of good reasons why this is a good idea for you. What what have some of those stories been like, if any? Sure. So actually, I have daily successes in talking to women about vaccination. I find that taking care of pregnant women is one of the greatest jobs that anyone can have. And it is awe-inspiring to me how motivated women are to do what's best for their baby. And with the COVID-19 vaccines, the messenger RNA vaccines that I mentioned earlier, we know not only that protects mom very effectively from infection, but it also passes immunity to the baby for the first few months of life. And so when I explain how the vaccine works, explain that the baby does not get any of the vaccine, that the baby just gets mom's immunity that she naturally develops to COVID-19, that is a turning point for many of my patients to get the vaccine. The flip side of that, what happens to the fetus when the mother gets COVID? Like what um, impact can that have? Like can the baby in utero get COVID too? Or is, is that a silly question? That's an excellent question. I love that question. There are many infections we know of that if the mom gets it, the baby can get it. A good example would be syphilis is an infection that moms can get and babies can actually catch through her bloodstream. And um, COVID and most respiratory infections, actually like the flu, do not actually cross over to the baby. So the baby does not get born with COVID, even if the mom delivers in the middle of being very sick from COVID-19. Mm-hmm. Because, you know, I guess one of the mysteries about COVID is it just seems to have some kind of 
difficult to understand impacts, right? It's not just affecting the lungs. It can f- affect like multiple systems of the body for a long time afterwards. So I guess that that's a possible thing that you, you might be worried about as a, you know, as a new mother, right? Or, or somebody who's pregnant and if you have COVID. Right. Yep. There are many um, concerns that I've heard from patients. The most common concern that I've heard from patients is that they're worried that it will either cause a miscarriage or that vaccination and pregnancy will give the baby uh, congenital issues. One of the things I've heard quite a bit from non-pregnant women is that they're worried that vaccination will cause infertility. And it's so interesting because people now turn to so many different sources for information. And the internet in particular has allowed sort of disinformation about the vaccination being associated with infertility to really run rampant. And there's actually no scientific studies that I've read through this week and in the past over a year since we've been writing about and studying COVID that links COVID-19 to infertility, that links being immunized to COVID-19 to infertility, or that links immunity to COVID-19 to infertility. In fact, studies have shown that there's no overlap between the proteins that a woman carries in a reproductive system and the um, proteins of COVID. So it doesn't make sense that being vaccinated or having the infection would be linked to infertility at all. Do you feel like the message is getting through? Like, And to your point, there is such a flood of information out there, right? I mean, you're, I guess as a physician, you must be, in a sense, battling against uh, that, that wash of information. Some of it may be good, but a lot of it may be completely wrong for the patient you're talking about. So how do you push back against that? Well, the first thing that I do is I ask the patient if they're interested in learning more about COVID-19 and vaccination and pregnancy. And then I ask them if they've considered being vaccinated. Many of my patients now actually have been vaccinated. In fact, over 150,000 pregnant women in the United States have been vaccinated uh, against COVID-19 in their pregnancies. And if they haven't been vaccinated, then I ask them if they have a specific reason why. And that really helps me to direct my counseling to give them accurate information to make the best decision. And you talked earlier too about sometimes you'll they'll tell you that, you know, their husband or spouse or partner, what have you, is is not vaccinated and they're kind of turning to them for advice. So is it sometimes about having a conversation with the people who are closest to the um, to your patient to try and change their minds or get the message through? Yes, absolutely. So in our uh, office in particular, the partners are often there and um, often it becomes talking about getting the partner vaccinated as well and talking to them about the safety and what is known about the vaccine. I literally had a, a couple just last week. And after talking to them, they thanked me. They said I was the first doctor that had actually given them information about COVID and had an open discussion with them. And they were going to both had to get vaccinated. Mm-hmm. So where do you think the pandemic goes from here as far as pregnancy and, and, and the patients that you're seeing? Are we, are we kind of through the worst of it, do you think, at least for the surge? You know, I hope so, Matt, but the biggest thing that we can do to prevent another surge is actually getting vaccinated. So I can tell you right now that someone who is vaccinated is significantly less likely, about 29 times less likely to end up hospitalized with a COVID infection. And the way that this 
virus is winning against us in a sense is that it has such a huge population of unvaccinated people that it can continue to propel and live on and and infect us. And so uh, the best way out of this is by getting people vaccinated. In the normal course of events, like in a non-pandemic year, I guess there'll be a certain percentage of pregnancies that are considered high risk, right? But because we are in a pandemic and you may have more people who are just seriously ill with COVID, but there aren't other risk factors, does that mean that you are seeing more high-risk pregnancies because you know somebody who has to have that level of care uh, and they're pregnant, uh, does that just give you a, a bigger pool of patients? Mm-hmm. Absolutely, Matt. Very insightful. We have a lot more patients right now that are high risk. Um, women who have recovered from COVID-19, um, we still like to see them back actually much later than their infection, just to make sure that everything is progressing normally. And then we just have had such a large number of women that have been infected that are at high risk for preterm labor and other pregnancy complications. So we're seeing a much higher volume. One other question I wanted to ask you too, and this is about booster shots. Um, What is the science, what is the research telling you about whether people who are vaccinated but are high risk or their pregnancy may be high risk, are they would they be sort of recommended to get a booster shot if they'd been among the first to you know, get the initial vaccination back at the start of the year? So booster shots are very much in the news, and they've already been shown to be beneficial for people with certain high-risk health conditions. Pregnancy is not considered to be one of those conditions right now, but the CDC is going to be approving booster shots in the general population, which would include pregnant women starting on um, September the 20th, and that is for any woman pregnant or not pregnant who is uh, greater than eight months out from her most recent vaccine series. Things that are yet to be announced are if that time frame will actually shorten from eight months to six months since her last vaccination, and I'm not quite sure about the time frame for children for the booster vaccination series. So what, what's your message to people, obviously people who are pregnant or, or, or that's something that, that's in their near future? Like what's your message to folks? My message to folks is definitely get vaccinated. And one of the pieces of information I've shared that seems most effective is when I tell my families that Back in December of last year, when the vaccines were first available, the Centers for Disease Control and the American College of Obstetrics and Gynecology said that pregnant women should not be prevented from getting the vaccine. In other words, it's okay if she really wants to, she can get it. And literally that entire messaging changed in the mid part of this year. Both the CDC and ACOG said, no, we're no longer saying it's all right if mom wants to get vaccinated. What we're saying is, Every pregnant woman should be vaccinated. She should talk to her provider if she has questions or concerns, but should proceed with vaccination. And once again, vaccination with the messenger RNA vaccine, which is either the Pfizer or the BioNTech vaccines. One of the things that's most reassuring that I share with patients is that the vaccine itself goes into the arm and into the muscle cells of the arm and the immune cells of the arm. And then it actually breaks down in a matter of days. And 
there are no preservatives, there's no fixatives or additives in the Moderna or Pfizer vaccine. It does not go in the bloodstream and it does not get at all to the baby. It also does not end up coming out as vaccine in the breast milk. So I think that when patients understand that, that makes them feel a lot more reassured about the vaccine. I also wanted to just address the FD, recent FDA approval of the Pfizer vaccine. So it has been very reassuring to everyone, I think, to see that the FDA has approved the Pfizer-BioNTech vaccine for use. It's no longer considered an emergency authorization use. One of the things that has come up is that there is not FDA approval for that vaccine in pregnancy. And when I've been asked about that by patients, I do like to tell them that while the flu vaccine has been used in human pregnancies since the 1950s and has been recommended by the CDC and the American College for Obstetrics and Gynecology since the 1990s, the flu vaccine also is not FDA approved in pregnancy. So there are many vaccines that are well studied. There are two vaccines that are recommended in pregnancy before COVID. That's the whooping cough and the flu vaccine. Neither is FDA approved, primarily because of issues with how much it costs and how much work it is to get FDA approval. Um, and the fact that there's so much uh, data to support it in such high uptake of these vaccines without FDA approval. Over 70% of women are getting vaccinated for whooping cough and Tdap in pregnancies, even prior to COVID. Well, Dr. Rachel Humphrey is the Director of High-Risk Pregnancy Care at Advent Health Orlando. Dr. Humphrey, thank you so much for your time. Appreciate it. Thank you. Still to come, Orlando State Representative Carlos Guillermo-Smith is suing the Florida Department of Health to get daily COVID case numbers. He joins the program to explain why. We're back in a minute. This is Intersection. I'm Matthew Petty. State Representative Carlos Guillermo-Smith is suing the Florida Department of Health over coronavirus case numbers. Smith, a Democrat who represents District 49 in the Orlando area, joined with the Florida Center for Government Accountability in the lawsuit. He says the Department of Health and the State Surgeon General, Dr. Scott Rivkes, denied public information requests for daily paediatric case numbers for Orange County, along with a broader request for COVID-19 data in all 67 counties, claiming the information is confidential. Smith wants the state to resume its daily case reporting dashboard. Thanks so much for being here, Carlos. Appreciate it. Thanks for having me, Matthew. Just walk us back through how this lawsuit came about. It's, it's not just you, right? You've joined forces with another organization. That's right. I've joined forces with the Florida Center for Government Accountability to force the state's hand to comply with our lawful uh, requests for public records. Uh, you know, just to give you some background, on July 23rd, I submitted a public records request to the State Department of Health for daily local COVID-19 pediatric hospitalizations, case counts, and more. But after weeks of slow walking our request, the state officially denied access to those records, and they falsely stated that they were confidential under state law. 
even after making those same records available for nearly a year on the department's daily COVID dashboard, which I'm sure your listeners are familiar with because it was up for so long. Mm -hmm. Um, All Floridians have a right to receive critical public health data in a timely manner in order to make informed decisions to protect the health and safety of their families. The DeSantis administration has consistently refused to release COVID-related public records, which not only hurts our efforts to contain the deadly virus, it's also against the law. And that's why we're suing them to obtain the public records our constituents are entitled to under Article 1, Section 24A of the Florida Constitution and to force the state to resume daily COVID dashboard reporting and avoid future litigation on this matter. Is the sticking point around the release of uh, the pediatric numbers or is it just everything that you're asking for they're saying no to? It's about all of it, and they're falsely stating that these records are confidential. We're not asking for patient names and Social Security numbers. We're asking for raw data. For example, how many children are currently hospitalized with COVID in Orange County? You can't very easily find that information the way you used to be able to when we had the daily COVID reporting dashboard. Uh, Actually, it's not available. We get an aggregate summary of how many hospitalizations are currently in the state of Florida. We don't know who uh, is hospitalized. We don't know where they're hospitalized. And it's not only, uh, you know, school board leaders and doctors who need this information. Parents, families, individuals need access to real-time public health data in order to make informed decisions to protect themselves and their families. And they simply don't have that right now, which is why we're suing the state to get it back. Okay, so what are you asking for specifically? or What's the sort of path to to getting what you want, which is the the timely release of data, which I would note too that a lot of uh, news organizations and others have been asking for too. That's right. And that's why... We're not only asking for access to the specific public health data that we originally requested from Orange County. We're also asking uh, the state to resume the daily COVID dashboard reporting. That way, folks across the state of Florida can have access to detailed daily positivity rates in their area. They can get hospitalizations, death counts. Uh, They can see exactly who is hospitalized and where. This is critical information so that people can make decisions to protect themselves and their families. And look, I understand that as a uh, member of the House Pandemics and Public Emergencies Committee, I don't have any type of special access to these public health records, but I don't need to because under Article 1, Section 24 of the Florida Constitution and our state public records laws, every person has a right to access this information. I'm willing to use every tool at my disposal, including access to the courts, to obtain these critical public health records for my constituents and hold the DeSantis administration accountable, even if it's against their will. You know, the reality is, is that public records laws in the Florida Constitution, as it relates to open public records, means that any person can access these records for any reason. But I think the fact that even as a member of the House Pandemics and Public Emergencies Committee, the fact that I even don't have access to this critical public health data is just absurd. Uh, but of course, we're requesting this data so that every uh, member of the public has it as well, because they have a right to access this information. 
do you think the state of Florida should be in a should should there be a state of emergency? Because that is something that you know the idea that a state of emergency would free up some resources, particularly when you're talking about things like access to oxygen f- supplies for hospitals and and other. Uh, critical things, more capacity relief, which I think the, the Orange County government, at least, or the you know the Central Florida Consortium of um, Hospitals, has, has come up with a workaround. But the question of whether we should be in a state of emergency right now is that something that needs addressing as well. Absolutely, the governor needs to declare a state of emergency. Last month, um, we are seeing more record-breaking COVID case counts even more hospitalizations, unfortunately, more deaths as well. There's no question that we're in a state of crisis, which is why the governor needs to declare a state of emergency to accept our current reality as uh, troubling as it may be, but also to make sure that we open up resources uh, that our hospitals uh, and our healthcare providers need to have access to. We've already heard uh, reports not only of there being uh, a possible shortage of liquid oxygen, which of course is what we use to treat our uh, water, uh, but also to help treat patients who are hospitalized with COVID-19. But also we're hearing uh, reports of local hospitals in our area whose morgues are completely full, who have had to rent um, mobile uh, stations to be able to store, unfortunately, the bodies of people who have died from COVID-19. And they would be able to um, at least uh, be able to have more resources to store these bodies had there been a declared state of emergency. The governor has to Stop burying his head in the sand, accept the current reality that we're in, declare a state of emergency, be more transparent uh, with public health data that our constituents have a right to. And he needs to start pushing the vaccine more aggressively so that we can prevent uh, more people from getting COVID who don't have to. I guess, uh, you know, the the governor and his supporters will say that uh, he has been promoting the vaccine, also pointing out the pop-up Regeneron clinics that have, I think there's some 21 of them around the state now. I mean, is is that going somewhere to help uh, alleviate the crisis we're in? Well, it's not enough. You know, he can't pick and choose just one method of mitigation uh, and hang his hat on that. It has been months since Governor DeSantis was aggressively promoting the COVID-19 vaccines, which we know are the number one tool that we have uh, to protect our population. There's nothing wrong with Governor DeSantis also making sure that the public knows about effective antibodies treatments uh, once they have already contracted COVID in order to avoid hospitalizations. But the governor has all from walked away from the number one tool that we have to most effectively prevent the transmission of COVID, which is, of course, uh, the vaccines that are free and very easily available uh, to anyone who wants them. Representative Smith, let me just ask about why you decided to sue the health department and Scott Rivkey's the state surgeon general, because my understanding is he is he is departing that position. Uh, I mean, will he be around to, I guess, litigate this lawsuit? <laughs> well, hopefully he'll be around uh, uh, 
he'll be a, he'll be around possibly to participate in uh, a court hearing because we are asking uh, to have a court hearing as soon as possible, given the urgent nature of our request for COVID-related public records and for the reinstating of the COVID uh, daily dashboard. Uh, the fact that our state surgeon general, Dr. Rifkis, who's been absent through most of the pandemic, um, has and and the fact that he's leaving uh, doesn't have anything to do uh, with whether or not you know we were going to decide to pursue litigation. We're suing the State Department of Health for these vital public health records that our constituents are entitled to under the state constitution, and uh, you know it's. It's sad that we had to get to this point that we have to force their hand, but unfortunately, the DeSantis administration has a, a record uh, and a history of uh, consistently denying lawful requests for public health data, so we had no choice but to pursue litigation. There's been a lot of talk about how the pandemic, a lot of things around it, masking ordinances, for example, have become politicized. Um, and now the data too, although that, that tussle over data has been going back for some time now. But does that make it more difficult, do you think, to you know, for the state of Florida to pull out of this pandemic? I mean, the fact that you're filing a lawsuit, like, is there a way forward that, that doesn't involve litigation? And what's your sense of lawmakers from both sides of the aisle being able to kind of work together to, to get us out of this crisis? Well, there is a way forward uh, that avoids litigation, and that would be the State Department of Health complying with our lawful request for public health data. Their rejection of our public records request for COVID-19-related information is itself an unlawful act, and we're confident that a judge will agree and uh, grant us access to uh, these uh, critical public health records. But I'm very saddened by the fact that Governor DeSantis has politicized every single aspect of this pandemic. He's selling merchandise, Don't Fauci My Florida, on his campaign website, which I'm sure is very popular uh, with a, a base of far-right Republican voters. But it does nothing to promote public health. It does nothing to mitigate the spread of COVID-19. In fact, all the governor does with his politicization of COVID-19 and his selling of Don't Fauci My Florida merchandise is he is creating even more vaccine hesitancy amongst the Florida population, which unfortunately is causing more people to get sick, hospitalized, and even die. So enough with the misinformation. Just get out of the way help us combat this deadly virus together so that we can save as many Floridians as possible. How soon do you think a hearing on this could happen? We're hoping very soon. Uh, this lawsuit in particular is asking for an immediate hearing given the urgent nature of our request for critical uh, COVID public health data and the need to reinstate daily reporting. So we're optimistic that we'll be able to get a hearing uh, possibly in the next week or so. And that's exactly why we're suing to try to get more transparency as it relates to critical public health data related to COVID. You cannot find information on how many children are currently hospitalized with COVID in the Orlando area. Now, sometimes there's uh, a good reporter or journalist uh, who is able to voluntarily get that information from a local hospital. But once that data is published, it has an expiration date on it. It's only 
uh, relevant and current the day that it's reported, and then it expires and is old information. We need access to daily, real-time COVID reporting the way we had for almost a year with the daily dashboard so that folks can have critical information at their fingertips uh, to make informed decisions to protect themselves and their families. Well, Carlos Guillermo-Smith represents Florida's House District 49 in Orlando. Thank you so much for your time. Appreciate it. Thank you, Matthew. And a note, WMFE has reached out to the Florida Department of Health for comment on the lawsuit. Still to come. When one of our patients crashes or we hear a cold, we all, you could see the tears well up in our eyes. And there's so much you can, you know, you can't cry every day. So I pray for my teammates. I literally pray for them. A day in the life of an intensive care unit nurse. We're back in a minute. This is Intersection. I'm Matthew Petty. Florida has more hospitals under high or extreme stress than anywhere in the United States. That's according to an analysis of federal data done by NPR using metrics from the Institute for Health Metrics and Evaluation. But there is some good news. The number of patients hospitalized in Florida has finally started to decline. For more on what it's been like for frontline healthcare workers during the surge, WMFE health reporter Abe Aberai spoke with June Brown, an intensive care unit nurse at Osceola Regional Medical Center. Well, well talk a little bit about your, your last shift. It's nine in the morning when we're recording this interview. What was your last night like? Mm-hmm. My last night. Last night was like just as bad as all the other nights I've had in the last few weeks. Um, we had. Uh, 20 patients in a 20-bed unit, and I had only about eight nurses. So uh, some nurses had three patients. I particularly, um, I was in charge, and I had a one-to-one. That's a patient that was getting um, continuous uh, dialysis, as well as another patient, and both of them were intubated. So I had two patients when I should have had one because it's a one-to-one. And then some of the nurses, um, the ICU nurses, had three patients. I did call and let the supervisors know I needed more help. And they, they said, oh, we sent you to lower-level nurses to help you. But remember, the nurses still had the full responsibility of their three critical care patients. You kind of touched on something I was hoping to get into a little bit later in the interview. But, you know, so it sounds like you guys are using tiered staffing where the nurses who aren't necessarily ICU trained or taking care of ICU patients, but they're kind of supervised. Uh, what, what does that look like on the ground for you guys? Well, they're not, act- they're not assigned to take care of patients. What they, they're told, are they are to be resources for us. So, and they can do things like um, uh, check temperatures, um, uh, check blood glucose, point of care, they can help the ICU nurse turn their patients. Um, they can witness some uh, non-critical meds. Like when we give insulin, you have to have a second nurse witness it. So those nurses can witness that. Um, but anything that is of a critical nature, they are not um, permitted to do. We, we, we've seen these sort of backups in hospital morgues where there's these mobile refrigerated units that have been brought in to get more capacity. Is that something you're seeing at your hospital? Yes, we do, because unlike other pneumonia, COVID pneumonia is different. And uh, we've seen a lot of deaths from it. Um, And so 
more so than I've seen in my years of nursing. So yes, I've seen that. Are, are you guys getting to a point now where you are, are seeing patients who you would have treated differently prior to the pandemic or if you had more nurses on hand or if you had more medical equipment, all those things? Are, are you getting to a point now where, where patients are being cared for in a different way than they would have been you know, if this was happening sort of independently a year or two ago? Well, let me put it this way, sir. Um, when the, the, the standard of care that we are giving our patients did not drop. What is happening is the nurses are becoming overwhelmed. For instance, you will be walking faster than normal because you want to get to this room, take care of this, get to that room, take care of that. You are not diminishing the standard of care you're giving to your patient. You are just moving faster and you have to think quicker and you have to think in advance. Okay, so I hung that drip and I know it's going to run for four hours. So in two and a half hours, I make a note on my paper. I will call pharmacy to send me another one. So you're kind of being proactive. So you're working on a like a crisis mode, asking for things in advance so that you don't run out of things. Do I, do I explain it? simply enough for you. I mean, does it make sense what I'm saying? We're not decreasing the standard. We're just working faster and trying to be more proactive than we would have been in the past because, you know, normally we would expect pharmacy to know we will need it and they will send it. Now we have to call because we don't want to wait for anything to run out. I, I guess my question with with hearing that response is, you know, do you I mean, I feel like that has to hit a wall at some point. I mean, at some point you have to be saying, okay, well, I'm making sort of a trade-off where, you know, I wouldn't necessarily have done this prior to the pandemic, but, you know, I, I'm going to go ahead and make that call now because that's the best that I can do given the resources that I have. Yes, we ask for our things sooner. Um, we, we send messages through the computer to, to pharmacy and with the help that we get, because they are not ICU trained, sometimes the help is not the help we really need because you can't ask a help, somebody who doesn't know a ventilator to go suction somebody. So you have to go. And when, the, when a critical care nurse who normally thinks critically have to think like a bit more than they normally would, like, like on, on speed dial kind of a way, you end up becoming emotional. And this is what I mean. You hear code blue overhead because somebody called somewhere and immediately your heart jumps and tears fill your eyes because you pray to God that that person makes it. And that's not how we usually work. We become emotional when before it would not have been that emotional. If you're just joining me, my guest is June Brown. She's an intensive care unit a nurse at Oscar Wynn Regional Medical Center. One of the things that you're, you're kind of talking about right now that I wanted to get into was, you know, sort of study after study has found high rates of PTSD, anxiety, depression in ICU nurses, and it's, it's getting worse because of COVID-19. What are you seeing among nurses in the ICU? I am not, I'm not a licensed clinician to diagnose PTSD, but I can tell you I see symptoms of it. I see signs of it amongst us. Because uh, when one of our patients um, crashes or we hear a code, we all, you could see the tears well up in our eyes. Um, 
And there's so much you can, you know, you can't cry every day. So I pray for my teammates. I literally pray for them. I, I, I encourage them. I know this is tough. One, one person that floated to us from another ICU, I saw a change in her when we turned a patient, and I waited until we got out of the room and asked her, tell me what's happening. She said, that situation in the room, they remind me of when I lost my husband. It brings back memories of loss that you may have experienced. But I guess I can say we're just trying the best we can to work through those emotions and still give the patients the best care we can. What about this idea of moral distress where, where you know, academics kind of talk about this, where it's like, you know, a, you know, a nurse or a doctor knows what the best course of action would be ethically, but they can't necessarily do that. Is that what you're seeing at this point? No, I don't think that's the case. No, we are doing all we can. I think sometimes we do so much. We, we wonder, is this really going to work? But because science says, this is what you do. We keep on doing it. We're not going to be like, we're not, we like the energizer bunny. We're not going to stop because this must work. So, uh, we just keep going. We just keep doing. When 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 the doctor feels that um, all of our efforts are proven futile, they will take it upon themselves to speak with the next of kin and say, look, we've done everything we can. We've watched the progression of the patient. And they would suggest to the family options. You can do a DNR. You can do hospice or we can continue doing what we're doing what would you like to have us do and sometimes when the doctors bring those uh, discussions up with the family they have apparently have already had those discussions among themselves and so they would tell us what they want us to do the, the, the spending the time with the patient uh, is not really the issue with us where i'm at because 99% of our patients are already are intubated and sedated. So it's not like they can respond to you in a meaningful way. Where we find that moral distress is when families call, we're all in the rooms. And so we're here on the phone, but we can't get out. And so when we do come out and if we happen to see a call come in, when we answer, we will say, oh, hold on, let me get that nurse. Because I'm in charge and and I get to know all the patients and what's going on. Sometimes I don't even go and get the nurse out of the room. But I would talk to the family about the patient. I would update them on what's happening with the patient. That's one of the, the stressors we have because the nurses are not able to get to the phone to answer somebody. For instance, we had a young person that he left the ICU, and this doesn't happen often. He left with a trach and a peg, and he was awake and alert. He was one of what we call our miracle babies. And so when his wife calls, everybody's trying to get to the phone, trying to run out of their room, get their PPE off, sanitize, and get to the phone because we want to make sure that this person can see her husband and, and you know, he can see her on, on a phone we use for like a, a, like a FaceTime thing. So the distress is not being able to talk and update family as we would like to because we, we're unable to do that with the patients because they're all intubated and sedated, most of them. I think when people are outside of the hospital thinking about it, like, okay, well, if my loved one is really sick in the hospital, I'm going to be able to, you know, 
call them. I'm going to be able to talk to the nurses, the doctors. I'm going to be able to get regular updates. And it sounds like that's not really what's able to happen because of not just, you know, what, what's going on with COVID-19, but just in general, things are, are very difficult to, to, to get you guys to be able to, to talk to, you know, a family and sort of do a FaceTime on your own personal phone so that 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 family member can see it. And and so I'm wondering if there are any stories you can share about some of the ways you guys have kind of gone above and beyond to make those connections. Well, the hospital has provided iMobile, they call it iMobile phones that we can use to FaceTime with families. But um, I know of one nurse that um, for some reason when she dialed a number from the hospital iMobile phone, it wouldn't go through. So she took her own personal iPhone and she dialed the family and she was able to let the family see the patient. And then I have another nurse who bought a contraption. I don't know what it's called. Um, it's it's a, a little uh, thing that you can mount the phone on it and sit this thing on the patient and the family can see the patient as they talk to the patient. He went out of his way and buy it on Amazon. And so we use that around the unit. We just put the phone there, dial the family, make sure there's a connection, and then we leave the phone in the room on this stand until it dies. So we can hear them either singing or laughing or praying and communicating with, with the patient, even though the patient is sedated and on the vent. Because we all know even though you're sedated and, and on a vent, you can still hear. And especially a familiar voice, it, it comes across very well for the patient. For myself, I use I use WhatsApp. I use WhatsApp once mm, mm-hmm. um, because the family didn't have iPhone. They had an Android like I did. And I said, well, do you have WhatsApp? And, and the wife said, no, but my, my daughters do. So I exchanged that with them and they were able to talk to the patient. He fortunately was not on the vent at the time. We had just extubated him and they were able to talk to him. And it, it was good because he was on the vent for a while and these girls had not seen their dad. So I was able to do that. And it, I, I think it did, it did well. I, I think in a normal non-pandemic time, if you, were, if you were talking about having somebody in the intensive care unit where they might have been able to communicate with their family member, if this wasn't a pandemic, you, you guys would have had that family in there. You guys probably would have bent over backwards to get you know, the family member in there so they can actually spend time with their loved ones. And, and that's not able to happen right now, right? Right. That's not able to happen because studies have shown that that physical touch is very important for people who are not able to see you or talk to you. So just having that family member touch your hand and touch you and let you know their day is important. During the non-pandemic time, we, we allowed that. That was, that was great, it, and it worked well for patients. With the pandemic, um, you know, just following CDC guidelines and things like that, we don't do that. Families are not able to visit like normal. I mean, what keeps you up at night? You know, what, what are some of the stories that kind of stick with you? Nothing keeps me up. Let me just say that. When I put my head on my pillow, I go to sleep. I don't need help. But, I'm glad but to hear what, that personally. Yes, I sleep very well. What what I think about is the fact that God allows me the opportunity to care for people. God allows me the opportunity to be the last 
hand to touch someone before they go. God allows me the opportunity to say a prayer with them, even though they cannot speak because they're on the vent. God allows me to touch them and say, your wife called, your daughter called. And I would say that I, I feel that it's a God-given opportunity that I have to do these things. And I, and I, I see it and I value it because um, I, I don't know how many people can do that, be able to be the last voice somebody hears telling them, your wife loves you, your husband loves you, your children call to see about you, God loves you. It's very important. I love those things. What, what do you want people to know who are outside of the hospital's four walls? I mean, people who, who maybe are, are looking at this through their social media feeds or, you know, don't necessarily have a personal impact of, of COVID-19. What do you want them to know? I want them to know that COVID is real. It's not a fake thing. It's not, uh, it, it is real. People are getting sick with COVID-19 virus. And whatever measures you choose to take to protect yourself, please take good measures. Whether you choose to take the vaccination or you choose to wear your mask and the socially distant, please do something. It is not just for yourself. It is for the persons you love. It is for the neighbors. It's for people you've never met. It's for that child on the street who may be infected because somebody didn't wear their mask. I'm not telling people they have to take the vaccine, but I'm encouraging people do what is right, not just for yourself, but for others. And I also want people to know that, yes, the hospitals are overcrowded and yes, we are overworked, but we still love what we do. And we still care for the people who come to us. We're asking our political leaders and our healthcare leaders to provide more staff, more, if you pay them more, they will come. I didn't leave. I am still here. If you pay people more, they will come and they will work. If you make the environment better for them to work, they will come. And we can give awesome care, more than we're doing now, to whomever comes to the hospital. But first, we must protect ourselves from the virus because it is real. I've been speaking with June Brown. She's an intensive care unit nurse at Osceola Regional Medical Center. Thank you so much for talking with us. I, I really do appreciate it. Thank you very much. It's my pleasure. WMFE's Abe Abaraya with that interview. Support for Intersection comes from our listeners and from Advent Health. Subscribe to the podcast on iTunes, Google Play, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. Production assistance for today's show from Abe Abaraya. Editorial guidance from LaToya Dennis. I'm Matthew Petty. Thanks for listening. Thank you.